Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show hosted by two book nerd friends who talk to other book nerds, including authors, poets, librarians, booksellers, and regular readers. Is there anybody else that I can add on to there? I don't know. I don't think so. Our show follows this format. We begin with my crabby dullness and Amy's sometimes maddening enthusiasm. It took us a little bit of time to become self-aware and recognize that we embody the grumpy sunshine trope that we often see in literature. That is followed by a fun conversation with a new bookish friend about what they love about being a bookworm. Then we talk about what we're reading, and finally we put our guest on the hot seat to answer some silly probing questions. We're glad you've joined us. In this week's episode, we chat with Tyler Miller, founder of Reluctant Reader Books, a company that makes books for kids who hate to read. He's also author to several books for young readers in the Nevermore series, including We Bury the Living. In our conversation, Tyler tells us about why he started Reluctant Reader Books and how these books pull in younger readers who don't normally find books appealing. He also tells us about other authors whose horror light novels are ones he recommends. But first, Carrie, you have a new friend that you have riding in your car with you. Maybe he's not riding in your car anymore. I don't know. He's on my front porch now. I have a big Gerald. So if you joined us last week, you heard Carrie go on about her collection of Geralds or skeletons that stay out all year long. Yep. Uh, So I went, I met my mom for breakfast last week and we stopped at Walmart and that, you know, they have their Halloween section. Well, I was looking for, I don't even remember what I was looking for. Bras, I think. I needed a bra. And you ended up over in the skeletons. Okay. Well, you know, I had to go look. And so they had a five foot Gerald. And man, you won't believe how fast I snatched that up. There was only one left. So it was meant to be. And so I got him and I put him in the car with me and I buckled his seatbelt because I want to protect my big Gerald. And so now he's on my front porch. It was funny because apparently after your trip to go buy bras and a skeleton, you then came (laughs) over to my house because um, we had some things we needed to discuss. And (laughs) when I looked out my window, I was freaked out for a minute because I did not see you, but I saw big Gerald staring at me through the passenger side window. Well, you know how when you're driving and you just kind of, you're in the zone, right? You're in the zone of driving. You're not thinking about anything. Well, so I was listening to an audiobook because I'm always listening to an audiobook in the car. And I kept noticing, well, why is that person in that car looking at me funny? You know, and I couldn't figure out. And then after it happened like four or five times, I was like, oh, I've got a Gerald in the car. That's why they're looking at me funny. So have you considered that maybe those two things should be combined that maybe Gerald needs to wear the bra? <laughs> maybe. I, I don't want to give him the new bra. Okay. He, he can wear the old disgusting one. But <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. So. Now all the Halloween candy is out already too. Do you have a favorite Halloween candy? Yeah. Milk duds. Really? Milk yeah. duds. Yes. Okay. Well, you know, my favorite, my favorite Halloween candy is Butterfinger, but I have had this thing lately where I've been craving Tootsie Roll Pops. Oh, no, you're not a Tootsie Roll Pop girl. No. I don't know why. I love them. And the problem is that they only last me about three minutes because <laughs> you remember that old commercial? What the owl? How many the owls? How to many get to the center? Yes. Yeah. Well, it takes me like four. 
Be- no, because you bite it, right? Yes, I'm a yeah. cruncher. I like to crunch it instead of lick it. And because I like the mix of the sour candy mm. part with the chocolatey chocolate part. Mm-hmm. And I bought myself a bag of Tootsie Roll Pops and thought, I'll just have one a day. No, I've been eating like four a day. That's <gasps> yeah. too many. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not always good at moderation. So that's I've learned the- that about you. Yeah. Moderation is not always my friend. <laughs> Well, Amy, between Gerald on my porch and Halloween candy, we are getting deep into spooky season. Tyler Miller of Reluctant Reader Books was a great addition to our episodes this month for spooky season. I agree. I think that my kids would have loved Tyler's books when they were in late elementary and middle school. Let's talk to Tyler. If there's one thing we've learned from doing this show, it's that if the publishing industry isn't giving you what you want, you have the ability to do it yourself. Our guest this week is writer Tyler Miller, who is also the founder of Reluctant Reader Books. Welcome to the show, Tyler. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about where you're recording from today. Where do you live? I live in Lake Chelan, Washington, uh, Washington State. Chelan is right in the center of the state, but on the eastern side. Uh, so it's right on a, a very large lake. It's about 55 miles long, kind of cuts into the mountains. And it's a very uh, tiny little town, 3,000 people or so, a uh, little tourist destination. So, it, Well, you know, as we go along in, in our conversation today, w- your books take place in Nevermore, Washington. So I, I'll be curious to find out how many similarities there are to where you live. <laughs> in Washington. But tell us about your writing life a little bit and the path that led you to writing specifically for reluctant readers. You know, it's actually kind of funny. I never intended to write uh, for kids. I had wanted to be a writer since I was uh, very young. I had always seen myself as somebody who would write for adults. My heroes were kind of like uh, Stephen King, John Irving, you know, people who wrote uh, very long books. and But I had also gotten interested in uh, teaching and went to college and got a teaching certification and was working uh, in schools and stuff a lot with middle school students, primarily sixth graders and seventh graders, uh, which was a lot of fun, uh, a really fun bunch of kids. Somewhere along the way, I had been in education for a while and then had left and was doing some other kinds of, of work. And was spending time, I had an office that I was uh, working at in downtown Spokane. And on lunch breaks, I would go to uh, this bookstore that was a few uh, blocks away from there called Auntie's Books. And I had spent quite a bit of time in there and had perused the adult section enough times (laughs) that I'd kind of seen everything that they were getting in. And I eventually kind of wandered in. They have a very large uh, and diverse kids section. And so I started wandering in there just to uh, spice things up. What I noticed about the kids section was, uh, one, it looked a lot more fun than the, than the <laughs> books in the adult section. <laughs> it looked a lot more entertaining. And as I spent more time in there, I, it, it occurred to me that there didn't seem to be a lot of the, the type of books that I remember uh, really enjoying when I was a kid, which were more creepier books and spooky books and, and that kind of thing. And and I also noticed that most of the books that I was seeing were uh, really long, which was great if you were uh, a reader. You know, if you really enjoyed reading, it's a great time to be alive. <laughs> There's so many books out there that are long and diverse and long sagas and stuff like that. But there didn't seem to be a whole lot of stuff for kids that were not big into reading. 
And when I had worked in education and had worked in a lot of sixth and seventh graders, and you know, most of those kids, reading was either something that they were so-so on or something they really struggled with. And I eventually kind of said, man, there seems to be this gap here that I, I don't see anybody uh, doing. And I thought, well, I wonder if that was something that I could do. And quite honestly, I didn't, I didn't really think that was going to work because I had never written for kids before <laughs> and didn't think that was going to go so well. I wrote a number of books and kind of passed them around to teachers and some librarians and stuff that I knew to kind of see what they thought, which ended up leading into the Nevermore series we've done. Reluctant reading was something I think I really came to that group through teaching because it was just a, a constant thing when you were in English classes. You had a small group of kids who really loved to read and you had a, a small group of kids who absolutely hated reading. And then most of the kids in the middle were kind of like, yeah, it's, it's okay. I can read. Nah, it's not the first thing or even the second thing I'm going to pick up. And so when I was looking at that group, it was more thinking about the time I'd spent in education and talking to other teachers who were constantly trying to find something to get these kids engaged and motivate them to pick books up more often. I know I have a 14-year-old a son and I think he likes to read, but you know, as you said, right now, especially, you know, there's all these distractions. If you haven't, if you have an Xbox or a Nintendo or a cell phone, you know, you can find 50 million other things to do besides read. And he's struggling now because he just started high school and he's having to read some classics and, you know, they're like, read a Pulitzer Prize winner, you know, read a Nobel Prize winning author. So I've gone through my shelves because, he he doesn't mind reading, but you know, like to to hand him this really huge book, it's terrifying, you know. And so I've been pulling out. I'm like, here's of mice and men, you know. Here's 1984. Every thin book that I have on my bookshelves. <laughs> so it, it can be daunting. And I think it, it seems like a lot of times for boys, especially, it, it seems like it's more of a struggle maybe than than for girls. At least in my experience with with working with with young readers. I would definitely agree. When I was in classrooms a lot, there were lots of girls who didn't, you know, they didn't have a lot of, of struggle uh, in reading. I, there's a lot of research and theorizing as to why boys seem to struggle a little bit more, which is its own topic. But uh, but definitely what we tend to see is uh, boys tend to have a harder time getting into it. Part of it too right now is that, uh, like you were mentioning there, you know, somebody comes to a kid who's Maybe like, oh, I'm so, so on reading. It's not really my thing, but I'll read a book. And they say, well, here's, uh, you know, Harry Potter. It's seven books <laughs> long. And by book four, the books are seven, 800 pages. And the yeah. font is tiny. And it's it's intimidating. And, yeah. and it may be a great read that you'd really enjoy. But when you're standing there, like looking at, I, I like to think of it as uh, saying to someone who, you know, spends a lot of time indoors, you know, on the couch, like, like myself, you know, and then say, Hey, let's go hiking. We're going to start with Mount Everest. Right. <laughs> it's a good analogy. Uh, yeah. I think that's part of what kids deal with these days is they go into the library or a bookstore or what have you. And so many of the books are, uh, they're fantastic, but they're very intimidating. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it's easy then to say, man, that just looks too hard. I, I don't think I can do that. And, and so they move on to something else. Yeah. I know my, my youngest son, he's 12. He just had a teacher tell him, 
you know, they had to pick a book. So I was showing him, you know, again, because I, I teach, I have lots of books. And I said, well, here's here's one you might like. And he said, well, it's not 300 pages. She said it had to be 300 pages or, mm-hmm. or maybe it was 200 pages. I can't remember. And I said, well, this is 179 pages. I'm like, it's fine. Read it. You know, like on the one hand, I get it. They want him to read chapter books, but I'm like, just say chapter books then. Mm-hmm. Don't necessarily put a page number on it. I feel like, unfortunately, uh the education system has kind of boxed itself in, not everywhere, but you know, they'll have a, a system that says, oh, well, it's got to be within a certain grade level and a, a certain reading level. And so a kid will often come in with something, go, I'm really excited about reading this book. And then the teacher has to say, yeah, I'm sorry. Right. It doesn't fit into our, uh, you know, our, our system or it's not in our grading program that we have here. You're going to have to pick something else. That's really disheartening for a kid who you know, maybe is rarely excited about reading a book uh, and then to be kind of shut down that way. So. Right. Well, well, tell us about uh, the founding of Reluctant Reader Books. What was it that pushed you to, to found it? So initially, I, I wrote the Nevermore books the, that you guys have seen, and I was familiar with the uh, traditional publishing process and and thought, this is great. I got these, these fun books. I've given them out to teachers and librarians and I, and they had given them to students and everybody seemed very enthusiastic about it. And I thought, this is great. So I'll start sending out, you know, letters to, you know, literary agents and, you know, we'll, we'll go that route. And so the queries that I sent out to agents, you know, I, I said, look, I mean, they can be read by anybody. They could be read by any kid, but the concept was, Really, this was the audience, was these reluctant reading kids. And the responses I kept getting back were, were interesting. Some were, you know, a total pass. Uh, some were encouraging. But across the board, everybody ignored the angle of it being for reluctant readers. And the agents that got back to me with recommendations, as, you know, agents will sometimes do, and they'll say, hey, this is really good. I like it, but I think you should do this and this and this. And across the board, every time it was, I think this should be longer. I think it should be more complex. I mm. think it should be scarier. It needs more details, you know, and description. And, you know, and, and the truth is that all of that advice was good advice. I mean, it, it were things that would improve different aspects of the story and from a literary standpoint would enhance certain things and would make the books kind of align more with um, a lot of the stuff that we see in the market right now. And so I had a lot of conversations with friends of mine and people who were kind of involved in this process with me about, you know, should I change these things and then, you know, maybe have a better shot at, at getting in with, you know, with some of these agents. But ultimately, what I decided on was it after a couple of years, it was, you know, I thought, I don't think people are getting what I'm trying to do here or, or they got it and they just, you know, they just didn't think that was for them. But eventually I thought, you know, this is something that it that seems like I'm not connecting with people on this, but I know there's a need out here because I had seen it in the classroom. And when I talked to librarians and teachers and parents and stuff, they said, yeah, it's not a lot that my kid who doesn't like to read really would pick up. And so eventually I thought, you know, this is something I think that I'm just going to can do myself. And yes, we ended up <laughs> going, the, going alone route. It seems to me that uh, if you did some of those things, it would no longer be sort of targeted at the audience that you want to reach, which is the kids who don't want necessarily a long, complex book. 
but the other thing is, I'm not sure that publishing houses are necessarily wanting to target reluctant readers because they're not going to be the ones buying a lot of books necessarily. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It took I, me about 10 seconds to see that. And it took me about <laughs> two years. <laughs> Well, I just thought about, you know, they're thinking, well, you know, that's great and all, but these kids are not going to be making us money because they're reluctant readers, right? And so you have a different goal from what the publishing company has. So I think uh, it makes sense that you formed your own publishing company. It took me a while to to catch on to that one. (laughs) (laughs) It did click at some point. I remember having conversations saying, you know, I, I really do think the problem is that it's a heck of a lot easier to sell books to people who like to read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, when that, when that light kind of finally went on, I thought I can see the the issue here. You know, you're saying, well, I think everyone acknowledges there's an audience there for kids who aren't super hot on reading, but you know, you're trying to sell something to them that they don't want in the first place. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> to me, I guess I'm looking at it like, yeah, there's going to be kids who, you know, they're just not readers, right? You can put something in front of them and and that horse is never going to go to that particular, you know, water source. But I've just heard from so many people, you know, just from doing this show that maybe they weren't into reading and then they landed on a book that they loved and that just, it flipped a switch for them. You know, I don't, I'm not a CEO of a company. So, uh, and there's probably a reason and me having this thought is probably that reason, but you know, it seems to me like it's worth it yeah. that, you know, that you would turn on kids to reading and then they would become readers. You know, they would become the clientele that these companies want. Let's talk a little bit about the Reluctant Reader Books website, because uh, there's lots of information that you put on there that talks about how your books are designed. So can you explain some of the design decisions, not having anything to do with the story, but just the the way the books look? Yeah. This whole thing, like we were saying, you know, it started with writing the books, but when it became clear that, okay, well, I think we're going to do a path where we're just going to publish these myself, that led into having to make a lot of decisions about, okay, well, what are these books going to look like? A lot of things that you don't think about um, if you're purely writing the books or, you know, usually as a reader, you're not uh, thinking too much about the the font and the spacing and, you know, and the paper quality and all those kind of things. But they're things that if you're going to publish a book, you, you have to make those calls. And so that led me into really wanting to look at, OK, well, if, if these are going to really be for reluctant readers, are there design aspects that would make these easier for those kids to read and, and kind of encourage faster reading and comprehension and so on. And so we started to go through looking for research in the area of reading science and stuff that might guide some of those decisions. And there is a, a fair amount of research out there. I don't think it's anything surprising. A lot of these things are like, well, if you think about a kid who doesn't like to read, if they pick up a book and the font is really small and the lines are really tightly together, it looks really intimidating. Whereas if the font's a little larger, there's a little more white space, well, that looks easier to read. And so we ended up doing a lot of experimenting with trying to figure out what kind of font to use. There is surprisingly a gigantic world uh, of people who are into fonts. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> any artists out there are probably very aware of that. Uh, but it's it's a very interesting world with a long history, which I ended up spending a few months uh, going down that rabbit hole trying to figure out what kind of font would be the most easily read and, and so on. And there's a lot of very heated debate about that topic, surprisingly. <laughs> so. Isn't that funny? Yeah, that was an interesting one. We ended up settling on a font that there was some research around the idea that certain types of fonts were easier to read for kids who were dyslexic, which isn't necessarily our our target audience with these, but that suggested that this might be something that was actually easier uh, to read. And uh, so basically our books, what we settled on was a certain uh, choices with fonts, certain choices with line spacing between sentences or between lines. There's a little more white space. Obviously, the length of book, length of chapters, uh, those kind of decisions were were all really integral because ultimately what we wanted was for a kid who isn't really a reader to pick it up and when they flip it open to go, this doesn't look hard. I think I can do this. Mm-hmm. But that also, we, initially we experimented with some very dramatic spacing and, and much larger font. And when we gave those to kids, they said, yeah, this looks like it's a special ed book or something. Right. So we had to kind of go away from that because at the same time, you want a kid to pick it up and go, this doesn't look hard, but they, you don't want them to feel like, oh, this is for babies. It's not a baby book. It's not a baby book. Right. You know, you yeah. don't want, no kid wants to be sitting in class while everyone's doing silent reading and thinking everyone assumes you're reading a baby book. So, yeah, and then we tested a lot of different variations with kids uh, to see what what they came back with and said, yeah, I like this one. I like this one. This looks better or easier. So it was a bit of a process there. I love that you sort of had focus groups of kids reading them and giving you their feedback. Tell us about what goes into creating your own publishing company. You know, I think years ago, starting your own publishing company would have been a really daunting task uh, because most of the tools that would be necessary uh, were expensive and and really prohibitive. It's really kind of an exciting world right now because there's not a lot of barrier uh, into jumping in and and self-publishing or starting your own publishing company. In our case, it was just a matter of of actually forming a business and then taking a look and saying, okay, what are all the tools and things that we're going to need in order to make this happen? For us right now, we've only done the books that that I've written, so that was a, a pretty easy process. And then it's you know it was really just going through and figuring out well how do, how do you put a book together? What are the ways that's done? There's a number of paths there. There's a, for every aspect of this, like your interior layout and your jacket design and layout and all those kinds of things. There are actually really pretty cheap services out there that can do that for you. Or uh, in our case, we try to do almost everything in-house basically to keep costs down. And the one thing we did go out of house for was the actual cover illustration. So uh, we went looking for a uh, cover illustrator and spent uh, a, a number of months combing through Pinterest, mostly uh, looking for people who we thought would really kind of fit what we were looking for. And we came across the artist uh, that we used. Forgive me, I can't remember his real name. The, the name he works under is Butcher Billy, and he does fantastic work. Um, he's actually pretty well known now. I think he was fairly well known when I came across his work. He was doing fan art for Stranger Things. 
And his use of color was just so vibrant and uh, really stood out. And I really liked his style. It's a very 80s vibe going on. And we reached out to him through his uh, agency that's in New York. He was fantastic to work with, just did such great work and, and so easy to work with and just knock things out of the park. So we, we were very, very lucky. I think that was probably money well spent because another thing about kids who don't want to read is if the cover looks boring, there's no way they're going to pick it up. And your covers are definitely not boring. Like that's partly what caught my eye is that I saw some of your the covers of your books on Instagram and I was intrigued by them. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to then actually read to see, well, what is that? You know, I need to find out a little bit more about what that book is. Yeah, I love book cover art and design. Uh, I, I'm not an artist myself, but I have just a lot of appreciation for uh, book covers in particular. And when we started trying to think about what kind of design would, would we want, I thought a lot about Goosebumps and, and fantastic cover art that Tim Jacobus did for the original series. And how those covers were often what drew people to the books. And the covers were often far creepier than the books actually were. And I kind of wanted a similar effect for these. And I also wanted something that didn't look like anything else that was on the market. So talk to us a little bit about the Reluctant Reader Books website. Because, I, I mean, looking through that as a teacher, I think that's a great resource for parents that really explains a lot of the components of literacy. And and a lot of times I think people just think literacy is just reading words. Like if you can read the words, you're literate. But if you work with students, you know, a lot of times they can read the words just fine, but they're not comprehending. And there's a big difference. You have the ultimate guide to reluctant readers on the website. Why was it important for you to include this? When we launched the website, so you're not actually selling books to kids. You're selling books to parents, teachers, and librarians. And so we thought, well, what are the ways that we can best serve those audiences? Not just pushing our books and saying, hey, you know, our books are great. Please read our books. Um, But we thought, what if we can provide resources for these uh, different audiences that we, we want to get in front of and, and what are the things that will be the most useful to them. And so the site has kind of grown in scope as we've you know figured out what that would be. So we kind of do a number of different things. We try to do reviews for uh, books that are out there right now in the market. We specifically look for Obviously, books that we think would appeal to uh, reluctant readers, although we, we really look for books that will appeal to a, a pretty wide scope of kids. Primarily, we focus on writers who are not as well known. I, you know, I think of it as, you know, R.L. Stein writes great books and the books are great for reluctant readers, but he doesn't need any help selling books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, Judy Bloom doesn't need my help. We uh, instead, we focus more on writers who are not as well known. Uh, mostly because I think, you know, they can always use a little more support. And and we do interviews with writers. Another way that we try to uh, just connect with different writers that are out there, help support their work and get their work out in front of people. Um, We also recently did an interview with a young man who does a a book podcast. He's uh, 12 years old, just started sixth grade, does a book podcast called E-Train Talks. So we kind of expanded the, the interview process there. And then we do a, a section really of resources that are primarily are really for teachers. 
I think mostly because that's an area I'm more familiar with. And we try to come up with things that would be useful for teachers in the classroom. And then kind of the hope is that they would say, you know, this is a good site. I find a lot of the stuff here really useful. And, oh, look, they also have really uh, some books that look appealing. Are there certain favorite authors that you like for reluctant readers besides your own? Besides, <laughs> Yeah, besides my own. Um, <laughs> you know, I, it's funny. I think that there are a, a lot of writers, uh, much older writers than I think anyone in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and so on would be very familiar with that are quite good for reluctant readers because years ago, the books uh, were shorter and, and a little breezier because that was the market. You, you couldn't write a 800-page book for kids of 70s or 80s. So a lot of those writers like a Judy Bloom or a Bruce Cavill or R.L. Stein or someone are obviously uh, fantastic. These days, I think much of the stuff that we've done reviews on and stuff are a lot of books I really think would be good for reluctant readers. Um, things like Jack Gontos's work, especially his early series, the Jack Henry novels are really good. Mm -hmm. They're funny. They're very well written. They have a, a real life edginess to them that I, I don't see a lot in other middle grade books. Uh, Phil Hicks's books, the Aveline Jones series are really good, a little bit creepier kind of ghost stories. There's a gentleman in France, Gary Gislain, who's very popular in France, who writes a series of books called The Ghouls Next Door. Uh, that are really good. They're they're very similar to Goosebumps, a little uh, a little darker. Uh, so there's stuff like that that we've done uh, reviews of. I read a book a month ago called "I Know Your Secret" by uh, Daphne Benedict Grab. Really good book. Really well done. There's definitely books out there if you're willing to kind of you know keep going through them and looking for them and stuff. Well, I just put a book that I found on your website on my Goodreads list. It's by J.W. Ocker, The Smash Man of Dread End. I, I was like, that. ooh, that looks good. So, I mean, it worked for me. You, and I'm, I'll be 49 yeah. on Tuesday. Ocker's work is really uh, impressive. I, I, I have a lot of respect. We, we did an interview with him. He's a very neat guy. Um, he does a lot of nonfiction for adults. His work really pushes the envelope, which I, I appreciate. I think for kids who are ready for the stuff that's a little more intense, his books are, are really good. But let's talk a little bit about your books, the Nevermore series. Uh, they have been adult tested, at least by these two adults here, Carrie and I. We read your first one, We Bury the Living, and I can say that they are super fun to read. You know, we're starting the spooky season. It totally gives you Halloween vibes. There's three in the series now. I know that they're all out. I think they all kind of came out at the same time. Am I correct about that? Yes. We released all three of the books um, at once. That was it actually wasn't the original plan. <laughs> we were going to release them one and then another one a couple months later and then a couple months after that. And then I got feedback from some of my teacher friends who said, look, you should release them in the summer and you should release them all at once. Because, you know, if I, if I saw this and I thought, hey, I need some more books for my classroom, I'd much rather order a whole series are all set at one time rather than having to wait two or three months down the road. I might forget all about it. Um, so we ended up doing them all at once. Like I had said earlier, I, I'd never thought of myself as somebody writing for this age group. And so the first book I wrote actually came together rather quickly and it was a lot of fun to do. It was really entertaining. And when I gave it to uh, friends of mine who were teachers, librarians, and they said, this is really good. And I thought, this has got to be a fluke. Like it's gonna be a, a one time, one off. There's no way this would happen again. 
how about I'll try and write another one and we'll see if I can get through another one. Cause you know, sometimes it's just a one-time deal. And then I wrote another book and it was also a lot of fun to write and was really enjoyable and kind of fast paced. And I got to the end of that and thought, well, sometimes lightning strikes twice. (laughs) It it was really a process for me to get into that kind of space where I could think of myself as somebody writing for kids. And it wasn't until about the third time out that I thought, you know, this feels like something I probably could do and actually enjoy this (laughs) process writing for them and, you know, for kids and stuff. So I wrote, I think it was seven books before I finally, you know, was sending these books out and, you know, went through that whole process of trying to find an agent and a publisher and all that jazz. And and then when I finally said, okay, look, I think we're going to do this uh, myself. Then I went back to those different books and tried to pick out, okay, which ones of these do I think are really the best of the of the, the lot and would be uh, the best books to kind of start out with and, and get kids really going. So. I want to ask, because we both read the first book in the series, We Bury the Living. The second book is called Death Cab, and the third book is called The 13th Floor. Are the books in the series, do they have shared characters, or, or are they just all kind of within this Nevermore Washington universe? The books are standalone. You could read them in any order. They don't build on each other in that in that kind of way, like a Lord of the Rings or something like that. They're all set in the same locale. And there, there are shared characters. I've always really appreciated what Stephen King has done with his body of work, where there will be a book where there's a main character who then appears as a, a side note character somewhere else down the line and another book or a short story. And so you see people kind of coming in and out. And sometimes they're the main focus and sometimes they're not. And so I, I thought that was a, a nifty idea that, that could be incorporated here. I'm not sure that's that easy to see in these three books, but in the concept overall, there would be characters who would kind of recur in different ways. And then obviously, because they're in the same setting, there would be certain stores or locations and stuff that, that might pop up over and over again. So tell our listeners just a little bit about the fictional location of Nevermore, Washington, where all three of these books take place. I base Nevermore uh, really entirely on uh, on Lake Chelan, which is my hometown where I grew up. Probably the only real difference is it's more the Lake Chelan of, of my childhood more than it is the Lake Chelan uh, right now. <laughs> One of the things that I struggled with trying to figure out was how much modern technology would be in- included in the books. And I-, I tried as much as I possibly could to kind of keep that out, <laughs> you know, just because... I think kids get plenty of uh, cell phones and everything uh, everywhere else. So I, I tried to kind of minimize the amount of, of tech in the book. So they, they feel probably a little bit 1990s in terms of the era. But it's a, t- it's a small town on a lake. Um, and then some of the places that actually existed in my child, the donut, they're all gone now. I, it was kind of fun to get a chance to bring back uh, certain things like a pizza parlor that I really enjoyed that had a a fun arcade and stuff that's no longer around and enclosed years ago. And so different things like that, that I got to include in these books. Well, I'm looking at pictures of Lake Chelan and uh, it's much prettier than what I envisioned when I was reading the book. So, so the real life uh, location doesn't seem nearly as creepy as what the um, book did. So your writing succeeded. If you were going for that creepy, I would never want to go here, (laughs) but 
Yeah, the, it's actually a very beautiful place. Uh, the, the lake is pristine water. It's it's just fantastic place to come to do any kind of water sports or hiking and stuff like that. It's a, it is a big tourist attraction. Very pleasant place to grow up. But, you know, pleasant doesn't work so well if you're writing a, you know, a, a spooky story. So we tried <laughs> a little bit uh, creepier in the books. So all of these books have a horror feel to them. Do you think that there's something about horror books that makes a reluctant reader more willing to try those types of books? I personally do. I, I don't know if other people would agree with me on that. I, I tend to feel like horror is kind of a, uh, well, it, it's become far more acceptable now. I, but uh, I, I still think with kids, I'll give you an, give you an example. My wife works at uh, a bookstore. And she's told me multiple times now what will happen is a kid will bring down one of my books and go up to the counter and they'll say, okay, this is the book I want. And then their mom will come up and they'll look at the book and they'll look at the kid and they'll look at the book. And the mom's really frowning like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I think even now parents are always kind of a little bit like, man, I don't know. You know, this might give my kid nightmares or maybe I don't like horror very much. But I think that for kids, there's an aspect of the taboo, you know, when you're Mm. looking at the horror genre. And I think for someone who isn't super hot on reading, that taboo aspect can be appealing. I like to tell parents who are maybe a little uh, hesitant that the books themselves actually really aren't that spooky. (laughs) The covers are probably the creepiest part of the of the whole thing. But hopefully they're just a lot of fun and they're kind of more of a Twilight Zone-ish feel than anything really uh, out there. So, Yeah, I would agree with that. These books definitely have sort of an R.L. Stein goosebumps feel to them from the 1990s. And I didn't realize this, but most of those R.L. Stein books are now out of print. And a local bookseller was telling Carrie and I recently that they have a lot of parents come in to buy the Goosebumps books for their kids because they have such fond memories of them from their own childhoods. And then they're disappointed to find out that they really aren't available anymore, at least not to buy new. And so hopefully the whole thing with it being a taboo, like to certain parents or that's dying out a little bit because so many parents were coming of age in the nineties and and were reading Goosebumps or scary stories. What's the name of that book? To Tell in the Dark. To Tell in the Dark. Yes, that's it. I remember uh, I saw this interview or a post that R.L. Stein put up, and he said that it that now people come up to him and say, "Yeah, you know, I kept all your books from when I was a kid. Now I read them with my kids because they're a real nostalgia thing." And he said it took him a long time to to kind of accept that he was now like a nostalgia piece, (laughs) (laughs) but. I agree. Goosebumps was obviously uh, just fantastic for getting kids to read and just sold a you know, tremendous number of copies, turned a lot of people into readers. When I was coming at this Nevermore concept, I went through and, and read a bunch of interviews with R.L. Stein, uh, where he talks uh, very transparently about his writing process and what he wanted. He described the Goosebumps series as his idea was he wanted them to be like a roller coaster, where it was uh, exciting and a little scary, but always safe. Mm. And so that kids could feel like they could get that thrill, but they knew it was never going to be anything that would really terrify them. And I really lifted a lot from his process in terms of the 
short chapters, cliffhanger endings, a book that was fast and fun, but wasn't really going to terrify you. I, I thought that was a really good model for the kind of readers that we, I was trying to reach. Um, and there are other series out there that I think are doing similar things. Um, J.H. Reynolds writes a series uh, called Monster Streets. Very good. Exact same kind of process, uh, same kind of style. There's a, a series called Fright Vision that I think is kind of a, a similar kind of thing as well. Well, you said that you had originally written seven different books, only three are out. Are you going to be publishing the rest of those? Are there other series that you have in the planning stages for Reluctant Reader books? We're hoping to continue to put out more books in the Nevermore series. We have some other series uh, that we're looking at because, you know, for me, I really like horror and I think it's a good angle for kids. But obviously, there's a lot of kids who fit the bill with Reluctant Readers but, you know, who don't like horror. So so we have some other ideas that we're kicking around for some stuff that may be uh, like in the mystery, you know, genre and things like that, that would be other types of stories that might appeal to these kids. I think now is a great time for us to take a short break, take a little breather. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. It is starting to get a little bit cooler. For me, that means that there's certain kind of books that I'm reading, but I don't know about you. You're not a seasonal reader like me. What are you reading right now? Well, you know, I, I am not a seasonal reader. I, I don't know what provokes me to read the books I read. Usually they have to be depressing. Uh, I think that's <laughs> the first priority. But I, I picked up a book. You know, I don't know where I heard about this book. It is actually an old book. It is called Carmilla by J. Sheridan Le Fanu. And it is a novella that was published in 1872. And that was 25 years before Bram Stoker published Dracula. So Dracula was published in 1897. And so this book, Carmilla, this novella, is kind of the first female vampire story. So Sheridan Le Fanu actually owned a newspaper in Dublin, Ireland, and Bram Stoker worked there. And so they knew each other and worked with each other. The character of Carmilla is the prototype from which all female and lesbian vampires came. So if you've read Dracula, you can definitely see some of the threads that inspired Stoker from what Sheridan Le Fanu first wrote. So for example, the, the narrator in Carmilla is a young woman named Laura, who reminds readers of Lucy Westenra in Dracula. So for those people who are interested in early horror, Sheridan Le Fanu also wrote ghost stories, which were said to have pushed Victorian boundaries. It was a short listen, and it, you know, gave me those like, ooh, thinking about Halloween vibes. So this is curious to me that they worked together. Mm -hmm. Did you go down a rabbit hole or anything like exploring why Bram Stoker would have written a story that had lots of similarities to this one? Well, I mean, it had similarities, but it was, I mean, it was very different because you know, Dracula is a male vampire. It was totally different. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, Dracula was the first vampire story. Well, no, it wasn't. It was preceded by other people who had, had done it before him. So I think that's part of what made me curious about this book. Carmilla is the vampire in the story, and it's a female. Was it so, printed at that time? Like people read it? Because Torian era, that seems very edgy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was published in 1872. 
Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Here's the thing. I, I think, you know, I'm not a Victorian historian or anything, but they were uptight. But, you know, a lot of times people who keep everything real buttoned up are pretty freaky. They just don't want to let anybody know about it. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about a lot of Victorians. You know, they kept everything tamped down, but it had to come out some way. And so it came out through Carmilla, this female lesbian vampire. So anyway, it was fascinating. Fascinating. Tyler, have you been reading about female lesbian vampires or have you been reading other stuff? <laughs> no female lesbian vampires right now. <laughs> That's next. That's next. That reminds me, though, of that. I, you know, Leif Anu has a there's a longer novel he wrote called uh, Uncle Silas that's been on my like to read list for a long time. But I feel like I got to get in the right mood for. I had not read Carmilla, though. It sounds like an interesting one. Man, right now, if, you know, I, I think like everybody, I kind of get a that seasonal thing going and. I, you know, I like go down to the library and collect a bunch of horror novels and then can't figure out which one I want to read. So <laughs> I am reading a book right now that, that is a creepy book. It's a middle grade novel called This Appearing House by Ali Melanenko that is quite good. I think it just just came out and I come across it on social media and it, it's a strongly, strongly done work. I'm enjoying it so far. And then I, my mom and I, we have like a two person book club. <laughs> just I me love that. And we, we read this, you know, different books together. We're, I think, about midway through Wuthering Heights. Oh. Which I had never read before. And it's a very melodramatic novel. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. Um, Although when I teach it to high schoolers, they're like, oh, my God, these characters are so extra. I'm like, yes, they are. But <laughs> it feels like a like the kind of book a high schooler should enjoy because it's very <laughs> It's a very intense, but it's it's quite good. I've actually been enjoying that one. We don't read at the same pace, and so usually one of us will get done a lot sooner than the other one. And so I've been trying to figure out what we're going to do next. And I know some people who do that kind of buddy read, like they say, okay, well, both of us are going to read to this page by this time, and then they kind of talk about it a little bit, and then, then do like another page number for the next meeting. Do you all just wait until you've read the whole thing and then talk about it, or do you talk about it a little bit as you go along? Always is definitely the most relaxed uh, book club kind of experience. Uh, we kind of just talk about it here and there, you know, like, oh, where are you at? How, you know, what are you enjoying about this? Do you like this? And, and that kind of thing. It's definitely not a very official kind of structured thing, but we've been doing it for, I don't know, almost 10 years, I think. Oh, that's, oh, that's cool. awesome. And do you, is it like monthly or just sort of whenever you finish the book, that's when you're done and you it's talk about cool. it? Whenever, yeah, whenever the book gets done, and then uh, and then we pick another one. Wuthering Heights is a bit of an interesting choice. We actually haven't read a whole lot of classic Victorian era uh, literature. We've done a couple here and there, but we did, uh, yeah, we did all of Harry Potter. We do a lot of Agatha Christie's kind of a favorite. You can always come back to her and pick one of those up, and and they're really uh, fun and enjoyable. And we've done. Uh, more middle grade books now that I started reluctant reader books. <laughs> I have to uh, get through a certain number of those. So uh, we do a little more of those now. Is this a reread for your mother, The Wuthering Heights? Or is this her first time? This is her first time reading it too. You know, she, she was not a reader when she was younger. Didn't really like reading growing up. Took her a long time to get into it. And now she's one of the most uh, avid readers that I, that I know. 
um, which is kind of interesting. It's one of the things I try and actually tell parents a lot is if you have a kid who really doesn't like to read, I try to encourage people to remember it, it, it doesn't need to be a high pressure situation because a lot of people don't like to read when they're younger. Mm-hmm. And then they develop later on into uh, very avid readers as adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it just takes time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Amy, what have you been getting into? This is my favorite reading time of the year. Fall is the spooky season now. And I'm trying to fit in all of my creepy books because somehow I feel like when it's November 1st, spooky season is done and I can read no more until next year. I don't know why I feel that way. That's kind of silly. But the book I'm going to talk about today is called Wilding Hall by Elizabeth Hand. This is a gothic novella and is my first spooky book of the season. So Wilding Hall opens with a page that lists the cast of characters, or it's really a list of people that you will hear from in this book, because the structure of this book is is set up like an interview. It's an interview of members of a band from the 1970s who in current day are remembering a fateful summer that they spent at a secluded manor house in the Hampshire area of Britain to rehearse and write music for their upcoming album. So the band's name is Wind Hollow Fair, and they were a hippie era acid folk band. Think something (laughs) like Jethro Tull. And they took old English folk songs and they sort of punked them up. And the band had four dudes and then a new female lead singer joins them after their previous female lead singer commits suicide. So their producer and manager decides to send them away to this old decrepit manor house to concentrate on their music, write this album, which will be their second. And they're right on the cusp of having a breakout album. So the house itself is called Wilding Hall, and it's originally from the 1500s, the the Tudor era. But over time, it has had some additions added to it that are more Victorian and things like that. It's creepy and it's mysterious, just like any good Gothic novel should be. But the manor house is also situated not far from a long barrow. And I had to look up what a barrow is, but a barrow is basically like this long mounded tomb from the Neolithic period, like 2500 BC, and they can be found all over Britain. And it's basically like a a community mausoleum for people of that time period. That's where they would bury everybody in this barrow. But it's, it's pretty creepy. So we know from the list of the cast of characters that one of the band members, Julian, is dead. And within the first few chapters, we know that something happened in this house with this band in 1972, over 40 years ago. And each character gives their version of the story in pieces, except for Julian, of course. But it turns out that the record which they end up naming Wilding Hall after the house where it was made becomes a cult classic. I don't want to tell you too much more because it is a novella and I don't want to give anything away, but this is a book about the members of this group trying to piece together what happened to their bandmate. So this book brought to mind several things when I was reading it. When my kids were younger, their their teacher would say, when you're reading a book, write down, you know, connections. What kind of connections did you have with this book? I had all kinds of connections with this book. So first, if you've seen the movie Bohemian Rhapsody based on the life of Freddie Mercury of Queen, portion of the film that takes place in an old house out in the country where the band composed the song Bohemian Rhapsody. And that's sort of what I pictured when I was reading this book. And then if you've read or listened to the book Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid, it's also about a 70s rock band who in present day are being interviewed for a documentary about the band. 
So this book has that structure. And this one, the one by Elizabeth Hand was actually published first, but it made me think of that. And then finally, Carrie, recently the Foo Fighters had a horror movie come out about their (laughs) founder, lead singer, Dave Grohl, becoming possessed and trying to kill all of his bandmates while renting a house to record in called Studio 666. I didn't see that film, but all these things are swirling in my mind as I'm reading this book. This book's not horror, but it does have an eerie tone. I love gothic book or films. Haunted house books especially are guilty pleasures for me. But I like this one because it gives you those creepy vibes of a book like Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, but it puts a whole new spin on it. This book won the Shirley Jackson Award for Best Novella in 2015. Uh, And again, the name of the book is Wilding Hall by Elizabeth Hand. That one sounds really good. Thinking about Wilding Hall made me think of Grady Hendrix wrote a book that's uh, I haven't read it. I think it's called uh, We Sold Our Souls or We All Sold Our Souls. It's about a rock. It's like a horror rock. Oh, band. but I'll have it's to look into that. Really a niche there, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, Tyler is going to answer his three in the third degree. We are back with Tyler Miller of Reluctant Reader Books, and we are going to ask him all kinds of embarrassing questions. Not really. They're not that embarrassing. <laughs> Number one, Tyler, like a lot of people, you can spend a considerable amount of time watching content on various streaming services. What is your guilty pleasure show right now? Oh, man. I, I think right now I came across this uh, show on YouTube called The Y Files, W-H-Y. It is all about uh, conspiracy theories and are we in a simulation? Is the moon a <laughs> hollow space station put there by space aliens? And <laughs> it's wild and it, it's just a lot of fun because the stuff is so uh, out there. But the guy does a really good job of kind of enticing you with here's the wild conspiracy theory aspect. And then at the end, he always kind of puts in a thing about like, well, here's the stuff that we can clearly debunk. And here's the stuff that's kind of open questions. You know, we don't really know. Uh, But he does a good job of picking topics that are entertaining. And even if you you know are a complete skeptic and have no, you know, belief in any of it, which I think is kind of where I land myself. But they're fun to think about and raises a lot of just kind of fun questions. And I was watching one of these a couple of weeks ago and my my four year old came up and kind of, you know, peeked around my shoulder and. He has a a little fish bowl sitting next to him on a desk with the, in these episodes, and it has a little it's like an animated fish that talks every now and then. <laughs> and my four year old just thought this talking fish was hilarious, and so she started asking to watch the, these videos <laughs> with me, which was really amusing. And and uh, and then I was teasing my wife the other day, saying, you know, Steph, the uh, you know the, the aliens are. The aliens are real, you know, I can, I've watched the show and all that. And so that now my four-year-old goes around telling people the aliens are real. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's like watching the X-Files. It's just entertaining. To yeah. Watch. You just have to be careful that your four-year-old doesn't end up. Telling, telling all the neighbors that you think there's aliens. Yeah, that the moon landing was a fake. and. <laughs> Well, with having two young children, when I, when my kids were young, I made the mistake of not listening to my own music in the car or in the house and instead only 
listening to what the kids wanted to listen to, which at that time was the Wiggles, the Doodle Bops, and Dora the Explorer. So uh, hopefully you have not made that same mistake. But who are some of the artists that have been grossly overplayed due to your children? <laughs> yeah. You know, my I think my wife is was more in the camp of introducing them to a lot of the kind of kids shows and some of the like kid educational kinds of things and but they'll get those really annoying kids songs stuck mm-hmm. in their head. Like you, I, I can't stand <laughs> kids music. So actually very early on when my older daughter was, was younger and I, I said, Here's a Bruce Springsteen. Here's like a concert, a, a song and stuff. Cause I big rock and roll fan. I love Bruce Springsteen. And you know, she was like two and I thought, yeah, you know, she'll spend 10 seconds watching this, but at least we could say, Hey, look, that's a guitar and that's some drums. And, but she was actually kind of captivated by the whole thing and wanted to watch more, but that worked out really well because now both of my girls really like Bruce Springsteen, and, <laughs> but my two year olds like, Glory days. It's all she wants to do. <laughs> I'm pretty impressed that you can even stand to listen to Bruce Springsteen because <laughs> kids have a way of if there's something you like, you know, they like it too. It's like you very quickly decide, I can't stand this anymore because yeah. <laughs> I've had to listen to it 12,000 times. Oh, every time. It's every time we get in the car. It's my day. Glory days. <laughs> glory days. Turn on. Over and over and over again. <laughs> That's a good way to ruin a perfectly good boss song, right, right there. I know. And I, every now and then, I'm like, you know, we could do about Rolling Stones. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, your last question. So you obviously like horror. You like writing some spooky books too. What are some of your favorite things to do during Halloween season? Well, I, I think right now it's kind of been boiled down to some of the less spooky stuff because the yes. kids get, they get kind of creeped out. We had a one of those uh, four or five foot high creepy old man kind of look, looking deals. You, know, you walk by and it starts talking and stuff like uh-huh. that. We had them out in the garage at the last house we lived in, you know, just out with your stuff you got stored out there. And my daughter, uh, for a while, she thought he was kind of cool. And we'd, you know, you'd go park the car in the garage and she'd be like, oh, and we called him Fester and she'd wave <laughs> and she'd be like, that's Fester. And she thought that was really cute. And then somewhere along the way it changed. I don't know why, but suddenly Fester was super creepy. <laughs> He's in a shed now out in the back of our house. And, you know, we got a lot of junk in the shed. So you got to go out there and get stuff out for the kids every now and then like, oh, it's your bike or something. And a few times she'd go out there and you'd move a box and he'd be back in a corner and she would just run away screaming. I have to agree with your daughter. I mean, if he's in the garage, he seems kind of normal. If he's in the shed, (laughs) stuffed back in the dark corner, Fester would scare me too. Yeah, they seem rather sensitive. So So we do, uh, you know, we we carve pumpkins and, you know, the the usual kind of stuff like that. And there's... uh, there's a really great pumpkin patch deal they got nearby here that has a big trampoline you can go on in October and the kids love the, you know, all the, the fun stuff like that. But, uh, but the creepier stuff, unfortunately, I don't get to do it. <laughs> you just have to keep fester until they're, you know, a little bit older and then they'll like him again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They'll crossed. come around. Yeah, I'm hoping for <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, Tyler, it has been great chatting with you. Thanks so much for talking about uh, your Nevermore book series and Reluctant Reader Books, the company you founded. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You can find Tyler Miller and Reluctant Readers on their social media at Reluctant Reader Books and on their website at www.reluctantreaderbooks.com. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org.